You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Uh, if you if you know me at all, if you've ever listened to me talk, you know I am obsessed with housing policy and housing politics. Catherine Levine Einstein, uh, my guest today, is a, a, the author of a fantastic new book called Neighborhood Defenders uh, that's all about really digging deep into why it is that housing politics in the United States is so dysfunctional. Uh, this is my personal favorite policy issue. Love this conversation. I hope you will, too. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Anthony Iglesias. My guest today, Catherine Levine-Einstein, is an assistant professor of political science at Boston University. Uh, she's one of the authors of a, of a new book, uh, Neighborhood Defenders. Uh, it's a great book on a subject uh, I'm super fascinated in, and it's like, how does like local politics of housing actually work? Uh, so welcome. Thank you for having me. And uh, I think just start, like, what what is a neighborhood defender? So we became really interested in the politics of what happens in neighborhoods. Um, so there's a huge array of urban pol- political decisions that are made at the neighborhood level. Um, and the one that we're really interested in our book is thinking about housing policy. And so neighborhood defenders are the folks who show up to neighborhood meetings in opposition to the construction of new housing. Um, a lot of people talk about these individuals as NIMBYs. Mm -hmm. Um, not in my backyard. That's sort of how they're popularly referred. We actually like the term neighborhood defender because we, after reviewing thousands of pages of meetings um, featuring these folks, we really believe that these folks view themselves as defenders of their communities. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't see themselves as sort of selfishly motivated by property values or things like that. So that's where the term neighborhood defender came from. It's it's a non-pejorative term, right? NIMBY is something that was made up by adversaries and and one consequence of that is nobody nobody says right i'm an mb totally and it, i think it helps us to understand too why these individuals are able to persuade public officials right mm-hmm. because if a public official to see someone coming up and sort of selfishly defending their own property, that's not necessarily a particularly persuasive argument. But if someone comes up and invokes sort of these community concerns, um, that's much more persuasive um, and can have a really big impact on what developments in a community look like. Although, of course, I mean, you know, these are, that's to an extent, two ways of framing the yeah. same thing, right? Yes. So I, I own a home. It's in a community. Yeah. Um, if the community is, like, better in some sense, its value will go up. If it gets right. worse, it'll go down. So, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like I'm defending the, the right. neighborhood, right? That's more high-minded, but it, to an extent amounts to the same thing. Oh, totally. I mean, obviously sort of your investment in local public goods, um, your investment in your property values, all of those things can motivate you. But we actually find that folks seem to also be motivated by sort of this general sense of wanting to preserve their neighborhood character. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will often actually show up to public meetings to fight projects that would pretty unambiguously raise property values. Um, so one of the cases that we actually used to open our book is about an abandoned warehouse in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's sort of mm-hmm. this like crumbling building um, that folks show up to vociferously like block a development from happening there, right? So this developer proposed putting in um, four condominium units. Mm-hmm. And people said, no, no, we basically, we want to keep this <laughs> warehouse because we're worried about these parking issues. We're worried about structural engineering concerns. Um, um, and so I do think that there is this more almost psychological fear of change that really motivates these folks. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, people who, uh, you know, if you, if you follow the, the literature on this, uh, William Fischel, right, back in the day, he says uh, the home voter hypothesis, right? So people, homeowners are going to vote to preserve the value of their property. And he doesn't see that as necessarily a bad 
thing because it means, you know, like you you want public goods, you want things to be safe, you want the neighborhood to be nice, and 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 that's that's all good. And then, you know, in some of his more recent work, he also says, well, this can become dysfunctional. We don't have enough housing, you know, things like that. And, but I remember talking to him a, a couple of years ago about exactly this and saying, you know, I feel like oftentimes people are opposing projects that like they they can't possibly be be bad. They just don't want change, right? That that's a different thing, like a like a mental aversion yeah. to things being different. Right. And it's it sort of it doesn't fit into this rational framework, right? It's a fundamentally sort of psychological process. And we know that people are sensitive to all different kinds of changes. Like if you look at the research on how people respond to racial and ethnic change, mm-hmm. it turns out you're much more responsive to rapid changes than sort of changes of bigger magnitude over time, right? Uh-huh. So, like, the rapid changes are the things that are most visible to you. So, yeah, I think this is absolutely the case in housing development. Right. So it's like something gets built. And, you know, and I, I see this a little bit, too, just in my own life. I mean, there's been a construction project across the street from me going on for a while now. And, you know, if I think about it, like, when this is done, it's going to be better than what was there before. But it's a pain. Yeah. Like, it's happening now, right? Like, it's loud. There's, like, weird dumpsters in the street all the time. Uh, and I'm like, you know, it's annoying, even if in the long term it's it's clearly for the good. Yeah. So one of the things about one, – and one of the reasons that we think the neighborhood meeting process around housing development is deeply flawed is because it's going to disproportionately attract opponents. Mm-hmm. Um, so any kind of proposed housing development has concentrated costs and diffuse benefits. Like if you think about four condominium units, I, mean, I don't need to tell you you're living with this <laughs> construction noise. You have to deal with the construction noise, the construction vehicles, um, just the general disruptions to your day-to-day life if there's construction right next to you. And so you have every reason to show up and oppose a development. Um, But who's going to really show up and support it? Like, even if you're the most ardent pro-housing person in the entire city, you're not going to show up to every single four-unit building that's being proposed. Right, because it's like citywide, there are benefits to there being more housing, right? It it has an impact on costs, has an impact on the tax base, but no one project makes or breaks that. And that's where, you know, it's like, that. that is where a, a not-in-my-backyard thing goes, right? It's like, fine, someplace, but like, I'm annoyed about this thing right here. So let, let's talk about these meetings, because yeah. like, I, this is a such an important part of American government, but I think like also not like what you normally see on a flowchart of of how do things work. Yeah, no, you tell someone you're writing a book about neighborhood meetings, and they're like, really? <laughs> Is that really an interesting topic? Uh, but no, these are foundational to sort of how housing development happens in the United States. So basically, anytime you're proposing a housing project that can't be constructed by right, so it's mm-hmm. not like fully compliant with existing zoning, you're going to find yourself you're either getting a special permit or a variance from existing zoning. And so that means you're going to find yourself in front of a planning board or a zoning board to get whatever permit or variance you need. Um, and so how these procedures work, and it's, you know, the process varies a little bit from place to place, but this is a pretty consistent process across the country, right? It's like the developer goes up, they present their plans, and they sort of say, here's here's what we're going to build, here's why we think this is a great idea, and like, here's the thing we need from you, you know, zoning board officials. Um, and then proceedings get to turn over to members of the public. And so the members of the public's views are explicitly solicited as part of this process. And specifically, it's members of the public who live close by to a development whose views are solicited. So notifications go out to abutters, and oftentimes it's only abutting landowners or property owners who get these notifications. So these folks get the notifications, and they show up, again, as we talked about, if you live next to a project, disproportionately in opposition to the construction of new housing. Um, And one really important thing that we really want to flag in this work is that these meetings aren't just happening for, like, really big construction projects. You know, if you read newspaper articles about neighborhood meetings, it's usually for, like, a 150-unit apartment building Mm -hmm. or something. This is happening in many communities whenever someone wants to build, like, a townhouse or an in-law suite. And so this has a really big effect on the housing supply in areas like Washington, D.C. or Boston that have desperate housing needs but also in a lot of sort of communities you don't necessarily think of as having housing crises. You know, these kinds of meetings can have a market effect on the housing supply in sort of more privileged neighborhoods in less hot housing markets, too. Right. And so, you know, the the way this works, right, is you get this notification. It's like, well, if you don't care, right, who's going to show up to a meeting to sit through a bunch of presentations to then come up and be like, 
yeah, whatever. Yeah. No, right? totally. Right. Like, exactly. Um, and, you know, for anyone who's been to one of these meetings, the opponents tend to have more intense views, right? right? Like, if you are a supporter, chances are your views are, like, pretty weak about it. You're like, sure, that'd be great to have three more units of housing, right? Like, there's very rarely a project where you're going to be sort of really intensely supportive of it, unless you're the developer and standing to make lots of money from it. But there are lots of reasons that you might be intensely opposed to a project. Um, And so, yeah, the dynamics of these meetings are often sort of really angry project opponents as, you know, speaking out in opposition, and then often the developers, like the only pro-housing person in the room. Um, And so that creates dynamics where if you're a planning or zoning board official, of course you're going to pay attention to sort of these angry neighbors who have taken time out of their day to show up for three hours to yell about a particular project. Right. And so, I mean, this is both a a process which is costly, and it's also one of the costs of narrowing the scope of what you can do by right. You know, so in in my neighborhood where where I live, you know, one issue is the zoning, which does permit multifamily housing, but it's also a historic district. So literally anything that you do requires historic preservation approval. And there's no really clear – there are standards, but there's no – rules exactly right there's no safe harbor where you can ever say okay like i'm i'm good here anything needs to go to the historic preservation review board which means first you need to get a recommendation from the advisory neighborhood commission and you talk to people about it and they'll say well no that's good right cuz like you you always want to have more input right but the input process itself is a cost Right. So every time you have one of these meetings, if if I'm the developer and I own this property, right, I'm car- I'm doing carrying costs. You know, I have to pay like the taxes on this place, whatever maintenance costs I have. And that's also another month where I am not able to you know, start construction. So, you know, construction costs can go up. Um, so there are all these costs associated. You you might say like, oh, delaying by three months, what's the big deal? But that can be an incredibly costly process. And on top of that, at each of these meetings, there are often additional costs imposed on developers. So at some meetings, you'll find that your neighborhoods will come up and be really upset about the parking. Like mm-hmm. if you build these four new units, there's not going to be any more parking on my street. And planning board officials will say – almost as a compromised solution. Oh, why don't, you know, if that's a really reasonable concern, developer, can you go do a parking study? And that sounds reasonable on its face, but a parking study can cost $10,000 or a traffic study can cost $10,000. And, you know, again, developers often have lots of money. They could do this, but like it adds up and up um, to create these incredibly high costs for anyone who wants to develop a given parcel. And it helps explain one of the things that winds up annoying people, which is why is everything that's new built so expensive, right? But it's because it, it can be worth it, right? If the if the market is hot, it's worth your while to go through this whole process. But it's only worth your while if you're going to charge a really high price at the end. It's not some things in life, right? The the bigger market is the mass market, right? They sell way more Toyotas than Lexuses, right? And and you know not because like they're nice people. At, at Toyota, they're trying to make money. Um, the developers are also trying to make money. But if you have to, like, go through this crazy path, that's when you say, yeah, like, I'm, I'm going to want to make a, a million-dollar unit with, like, marble on everything. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's such an important point. And one of the other things that it does is it creates these barriers for smaller community developers. Mm-hmm. So one of the big complaints you'll see at these meetings is, like, this is a corrupt big developer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, like, someone from the community. And, You kind of, with this process, you can't have some small-time developer because the costs are so high. You need to have someone who really has the assets available to make the the numbers work. Right, because the financing, right, is so challenging when it's uncertain, right? You could have a guy who knows construction, right, could build a house, right, but is not going to be able to get a loan own a property, hold it vacant for all this time, not really even be able to tell the bank exactly like when am I going to start construction, right? It's all kind of kind of held up. Um, so what what do we know? I mean, one of the most interesting lines of research about that here is like, who comes to these meetings? It's not a representative subset of the neighborhood. It's dramatically more likely by about 25 percentage points to be older individuals. Um, it's dramatically more likely to be homeowners. These individuals are also somewhat more likely to be white. 
um, and they're more likely to be men. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that's sort of one area where people are deeply unrepresentative is their demographics. These are the most sort of privileged members of their communities. They're also overwhelmingly likely to be opponents. Um, so in our research, we went out and we read thousands of pages of meeting minutes and documented who showed up at these forums. Um, and we documented their positions. And using sort of administrative data, we were also able to figure out who they were, right? They were only 14% of these individuals showed up in support of the construction of new mm-hmm. housing. Um, so they're overwhelmingly opponents and they're overwhelmingly privileged uh, members of their communities. Yeah, to, I, to, to be clear about this, because this is really fascinating, because I mean, I think that's what, like, that's what most people's take on this is sort of journalistically, uh, but you actually are able to get access through open records laws to, it's like it's every meeting yeah. in the Boston area, yeah, right? Yeah, right. So we looked at 97 cities and towns um, in greater Boston for a three-year period. Um, and what's really unique about Massachusetts open meeting laws is they provide the names and addresses of the people who speak at public meetings. And when you have addresses, you can merge these individuals with other administrative databases, so like voter files um, and property records. And so you Using that, we were able to figure out that these individuals were really different from voters in their Mm -hmm. communities, um, who are themselves different from, like, the general public, right? We already know that voters are, you know, again, going to be more privileged than the general population. But even relative to voters, these individuals are much older, much whiter, uh, much more likely to be homeowners and more likely to be men. Right. And so that has— Do we know, I mean, are these older, whiter male homeowners, I mean, you say they're overwhelmingly opposed to housing, but do we know anything about the sort of demographic skew yes. of, of opinion on housing Yeah, issues? so obviously, like, in my dream world, we'd have wonderful survey data sure. um, from all these places. But Massachusetts very helpfully in 2010 had a referendum um, where they actually asked voters, like, what are your views on this statewide um, piece of affordable housing legislation that lets developers preempt local zoning um, if they are proposing affordable housing? This so is the, what, 23B? 40, 40B, yeah. 40B, so it's, okay. a, it's a piece of legislation called <laughs> Chapter 40B. Um, and what folks need to know about it is essentially, if you supported it, you're essentially supporting roughly more housing and more affordable housing in particular. Um, so majority of Massachusetts voters um, expressed support for this piece of legislation. It was 57 percent. And in every single city and town that we looked at, the proportion of voters who supported Chapter 40B was way higher than the proportion of people who showed up to public meetings in support of an individual housing development. Mm-hmm. Um, we really like using liberal Cambridge, Massachusetts as a nice illustration of this. So 80 percent of Cambridge voters adopted the pro-Chapter 40B position um, in 2010, but only 40 percent of people who showed up to Cambridge Planning and Zoning Board meetings showed up in support of new housing. Um, So even in the most progressive place in our sample, the place where you would have most expected a pro-housing coalition to emerge, you're still only getting 40 percent support at these meetings. All right, let's let's take a break and then talk, talk nationwide. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Okay. 
Okay, so the, that sort of survey project focuses on on the Boston area because because you have you have the records laws. Uh, Massachusetts is also convenient because they have so many rinky-dink towns, right? <laughs> so you could compare. Um, yeah. But, like, you know, is it possible? Like, is is that just eccentric? And, you know, maybe uh, maybe the meetings in Los Angeles are, are diverse and, and <laughs> <Right>. wonderful? <laughs> so I think there's a couple of different ways you can get at this with our data. So the first is we our Massachusetts data covers a really wide variety of places. So mm-hmm. this isn't just a bunch of rich white suburbs, which is, I think, when most people think of eastern Massachusetts, maybe, like, what your stereotype is. Mm-hmm. So we have really socioeconomically diverse places, but also places that don't have particularly thriving housing markets. So two places that really stand out are Lawrence, Massachusetts and Worcester, Massachusetts, which are these old industrial places, um, really racially diverse. Um, You know, Lawrence is 75 percent Latino and they're Mm -hmm. well outside of the city of Boston. So these are not places that are facing real housing. Yeah. So these are kind of Rust Belty. I mean, for people who don't know (laughs) them, Lawrence was like a, a a textile manufacturing mm-hmm. town like generations ago and now it's it's heavily latino yeah. quite poor um Worcester is is west of the city similarly like declining factory kind of area pretty cheap right and so like if you look at those places they should by sort of their economics be desperate for new development. They Mm -hmm. should be like any time a developer comes in saying, I want to build new houses, you would expect them to say, yes, please do so. Help our property tax base. Instead of if we're thinking about a rational economic approach, that's absolutely not what happens in our data. We find in both of those places, the people who show up to these meetings are overwhelmingly opposed to the construction of new housing. And they're also deeply unrepresentative of their communities. Mm -hmm. So in Lawrence, which, as we mentioned, it's three quarters Latino, only one of 42 commenters in a three-year period had a Latino surname. Um, and so it's an incredible disparity. And so that's one data point that I think would suggest that these results not only would generalize to a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco, but I would argue to places like St. Louis or Detroit or mm-hmm. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, like places that are sort of have very different housing markets in those coastal cities. So the other ways we get at this, though, is we actually go to some of these places and you know outside of Massachusetts and talk to public officials. So we did a bit more of a detailed analysis in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where we talked to a local alderman. We looked into a lot of housing developments, looked at archival evidence, and found really similar dynamics where in the advantaged parts of the city, you see the same kinds of neighborhood defenders showing up in opposition to new housing. Um, and so our sense from some of these places where the housing markets are maybe not as tight is that across the city, the opposition to new housing may not be as widespread. But if you look at the pockets of privilege within those cities, you can absolutely find places where there are neighborhood defenders eager to sort of fiercely defend and their that, boundaries. And that tends to be the place where the economics yes. would support new House exactly. building, right? I mean, yeah. that's like, you know, it's common sense, right? But you you yeah. want to build in, in places, neighborhoods that are nice, where more people want to live. I mean, this is maybe a dumb question, but like, why? <laughs> is I, the, the point about intensity of preference, I, I think, is obvious, right? If you're really mad about something, you show up to the meeting. If you don't really care, you don't. Uh, but like, why is it such an older group that that comes. Yeah, I mean, I think you canonical political science research tells us that when participation in something is costly, mm-hmm. you're going to end up with a more unrepresentative group of folks participating. So if we think about something like high-level campaign donations, mm-hmm. you're probably going to have a really unrepresentative group. Um, compared to something like voting, which is a fairly low-cost form of political representation, in relative terms, the people who show up to vote are more representative of the general public. So showing up to a public meeting is an insanely costly thing to do with uh-huh. your time, right? This is like three hours in an evening. Um, you know, they can sometimes stretch to like midnight. Um, and so when we think about that kind of costly form of political participation, um, you know, it makes sense that it's going to attract an unrepresentative group. We think the second factor that makes this population particularly unrepresentative is participating in these forums requires a fair amount of expertise. Um, you know, if you go to one of these meetings or you do what we did and read thousands of pages of meeting minutes, you can pick up these dynamics where you know, the people who show up are often lawyers or architects or realtors or some other form of real estate adjacent profession where they, you know, talk with such authority about local zoning issues that if even if you did show up to one of these meetings, if you don't feel like you have that kind of expertise, it's going to be really dissuasive to you speaking up and to you showing up at future forums. Yeah, I mean, so I— <laughs> 
I, I recently had to come to a, a neighborhood meeting as the uh, supplicant trying to get approval uh, for, uh, not even approval, but I, I was trying to get a letter of endorsement for a plan to put solar panels on my, my rooftop before we go to the historic preservation people. And that was one thing I found there was like, I literally couldn't answer the questions because I'm not like an architecture nerd. So like, I didn't know what some of these words meant. I mean, fortunately, there was like a guy from the solar power company there <laughs> with me who could help, but it definitely created the situation that like, I would not be able to meaningfully participate in that dialogue, even as somebody who writes about policy professionally, actually knows a lot about housing, but I don't know anything about architecture, right? right? And a lot of what they're doing there is like nitpicking the architectural decisions, which seems, I mean, it seems weird to me, but like that's that's who shows up. And and then it's it's like an exclusionary dynamic, right? Like you need to be able to like get along with the other people there. Yeah. And I find that to be sort of one of the more bizarre dynamics of neighborhood meetings is um that often they do devolve into some nitpicky conversations where essentially the neighborhood becomes the design review board. Um, and you read some of these and think, you know, aren't there city professionals who are probably better equipped to sort of evaluate whether the window is of the right shape that complies with local zoning regulations or whether fire safety things have been met? But still, oftentimes, you know, in sort of the way that we've designed housing and politics in many places, those decisions, neighbors at least get to weigh in on that mm-hmm. evaluation process. Yeah, and it's, you know— <sighs> I, I was struck. I mean, listening to some of the the people who came before me, right? There was a guy. He wanted to build. You know, it's like going to be a new townhouse on an empty lot in a neighborhood of townhouses. And there were just all these questions about the shape of the bay windows that he wanted to make. And you know, I think by the time it ended, it's not like there was anything wrong with the bay windows they ended up with. I mean, as far as I can tell. But it was just strange that there's a professional developer who presumably knows something about the market for houses. And no one was saying, like, it's a public safety hazard, right? I mean, windows can be all kinds of shapes. How did this institution evolve, right? I mean, this is like the land of the free, right? I mean, if you told Americans something other than this, right, well, we're going to have a commission that decides what kind of shoelaces you can have or, like, whether your pockets look right, we'd be like, that's that's crazy. So, like, why why can't your house just have the windows you want. So we used to have a different terrible system um, <laughs> for evaluating these developments, right? So um, a lot of this sort of emphasis on neighborhood-level participation comes out of urban renewal. So okay. we had a very ugly history in our country um, in the 1950s and 60s um, with federal government support of bulldozing a lot of communities, especially low-income, middle-income communities of color. So we gutted communities without any of their say whatsoever. Um, and so in response to this, in a lot of communities, there was this move um, starting in the 70s to really have more neighborhood input, right? Mm-hmm. To sort of say, you know what, we need to actually go back to the neighborhoods and incorporate them in decision making, which it sounds really good. And when you listen to public officials today talk about community processes, there's a lot of language about going back to the neighborhood. Right now in Boston, a city councilor named Michelle Wu has responded to really bad examples of corruption in the Boston Development Agency by saying that we should abolish this agency and sort of move development back to the neighbors. And mm-hmm. this sounds great when you have a system of corruption where neighbors have been ignored um, until you look at what happens when you implement these neighborhood systems and see who actually actually shows up to these forums, um, you end up moving from a system that gave way too much power to developers to a system that gives probably way too much power to privileged homeowners. Um, But it also just seems like a difference in kind, right? That we had in this sort of urban renewal slum clearance era, right? We had the idea of, well, okay, we're going to use eminent domain. We're going to take this stretch of houses. We're going to knock them all down. We're going to build a freeway here. And we're not going to like, bother about the impact of that on the neighborhood. But now we're talking about, okay, I'm going to buy, like, a warehouse, (laughs) and I'm going to build houses on it, right? Not talking about, like, knocking things down or seizing people's property, but just, like, buying things on the open market and and developing them, right? And that's just baffles me, right, that kind of slippage from, like, Top down, we're going to like rework everything to like know you as like an individual investor 
can't change a building. Yeah, and it's crazy because we don't – there are not a lot of other policies where there's this level of sort of neighborhood ability to right. micromanage it, right? Um, that there's sort of in land use and planning, we've really moved so strongly in that direction. Um, and it's it's entrenched in their curriculums. If you ask an urban planner to see one of their syllabi, they'll show you, you know, the, the neighborhood participation is just canonically built in. If you tell urban planners, like, maybe neighborhood participation is a bad idea, they just understandably, you know, they they have this history of urban renewal. They mm-hmm. think of it as such a good. But I think there hasn't been as much critical evaluation of the participatory inequalities involved and what the big negative societal consequences of this yeah. have been. And also that's their expertise. I mean, I remember I was talking to some uh, city planners in California and sort of on a high level, I felt like they and I were in total agreement that it's like California needs to build more housing. But like what they do is they shepherd, they, they sort of manage this community input process. And even the developers, right, who are supposedly the, like, nefarious profit seekers who want to be unleashed, like, their expertise, right, like, a lot of their value add is that they know how to do this, right? They understand what they can get approvals for. They know how to do it. They know who to talk to. They can present well at these meetings. And there's much less sort of pressure for change than you might think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there um, a lot of people will express dissatisfaction with aspects of the system. But if you say, well, one way to reform this would be to abolish or really minimize the number of times that things <laughs> come to a neighborhood meeting, people really, they react strongly to that. They view it as undemocratic, mm-hmm. um, whereas I would say our data shows that the current system is incredibly undemocratic. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, I think it's like a truism that having a like national referendum on everything would not really be more democratic than having a representative elected body. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you could say it was more democratic. It sounds it seems like a bad idea, right? People wouldn't want to do it. Right? Yeah. No, and so when I look at these decisions, um, you know, one of the things that I think we as authors of the book want to stress is that we're not against any public input mm-hmm. land use policy. But I think we as people who care about this area need to be a lot more careful about where this public input is incorporated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that rather than doing it on this ad hoc project by project basis where we know we're going to get opponents, think about having citywide conversations about wh- what we want our land use to look like, what we think are the areas that should be denser, what we think are areas where the density can't be supported by current infrastructure. And then once we determine the zoning, let developers build up to the limit of zoning without having to go through this ad hoc permitting process with community individuals able to have their say about what developers can and can't build. So you're saying, like, have input on the rules, but then assume that you're going to create a set of rules that's then going to just Proceed. Yeah, have predictable rules. I mean, I think the unpredictability of this process, as we've talked about, creates such high costs to building um, not just market rate housing, but affordable housing. You know, I think one of the things that gets lost in these conversations, you know, when people say, well, will building market rate housing really help affordability? is that these rules hurt affordable housing developers, too. And if you talk to folks who are building these subsidized units, this makes it really financially hard for them as well. Right. The the regulatory constraint bites on everybody. I also find increasingly as people get into um, sort of ideological flights of fancy and don't know how things work, like this also binds like public housing, like anything you might want to do, right? We don't have a sort of a unitary state. Uh, in the United States of America, right? So a state housing agency, HUD, a nonprofit developer, anybody in the universe is subject to the exact same community input process, zoning rules, need variances, blah, 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 blah. So there's no way, I mean, whatever your sort of personal uh, chechiness about for-profit market rate development is, like the rule set hits everybody. Absolutely. Um, And in many communities, the dynamics, you know, the social science evidence tells us that these dynamics are even more enforced with affordable housing. That, you know, when we think about racial fears and economic fears that many people hold, um, these neighborhood defenders come out in even more force when we're thinking about affordable housing. And I think we've seen this in in a lot of cities I know in D.C., I know in San Francisco, when it comes to citing uh, homeless shelters, right? Los Angeles had a thing where they actually, the the voters approved a 
I don't know if it was a bond issue or something, but it was it was a big investment in combating homelessness. Um, and as we, we discussed uh, with with a previous guest on this show, the problem is they didn't actually build any homeless shelters because they couldn't get them permitted anywhere, even though there was on some level like a citywide democratic decision to to do this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this fits the story from our data in Massachusetts where voters in general are like, yay, we need more affordable housing, but not here, not like in mm-hmm. this specific neighborhood right next to me. Right. And so the question in those kind of cases is like, can you create a system where people make a binding commitment, right? So it's like, not only are we going to spend the money on the homeless shelters, not only are we going to have our 40B, but like that's going to mean not that like every homeless shelter has to come in your neighborhood, but that there's some allocation of them, and then you can't stop it. Yeah, I mean, I think we need more active state and federal government influence in this process. And, you know, a few of the presidential candidates on the Democratic side have talked about versions of this where essentially important federal funds, like Department of Transportation funds, Mm -hmm. might be withheld if you don't build enough housing or change your zoning in a way that allows for enough housing. Um, And so I, I think we need to start being more creative um, at higher levels of government about holding communities accountable for being exclusionary. Okay, that's perfect time for another break, and we can we can talk about solutions. Okay, so you were mentioning a couple presidential candidates sort of talked about this stuff. I think uh, more concretely, you see action at the state level in some places, big debates in California, Oregon. And so, like, what's what's the logic of that, sort of bringing this up to a higher level? Yeah, so, you know, there's been a lot of really interesting progress happening on this issue. Um, and we can actually start at the city level in some way, mm. right? So Minneapolis um, recently ended single-family zoning um, and also actually abolished parking minimums requiring, um, which require developments to provide a certain amount of parking. Um, and so one solution, right, is to think at the city level. In some progressive places, it may be possible to assemble a coalition in Minneapolis that was Neighbors for More Neighbors, where you get people around this idea of ending exclusionary zoning. But the problem with that city-level approach is, okay, that maybe will work in Minneapolis and a few other places in the country, but there are a whole lot of places that absolutely should be building more housing. They're transit accessible. They're near jobs. But they're not going to do it unless Mm -hmm. someone forces them to do it. Um, And so then we have to start looking, like, who is the right actor to force a local government to change their zoning? The federal government isn't doing a whole lot right now. So the real action is going to happen at the state level where state governments can preempt local zoning. They can essentially say that no local governments, you have to allow a certain amount of multifamily housing. So that's one approach. State governments can also hold certain kinds of funding away from governments that do not engage um, in sort of allowing for multifamily or smart growth housing. Um, So I think there are a bunch of different approaches that you can use either with regulations or with funding um, that can be highly effective, right? And we see some of this in Oregon. Mm-hmm. But the politics of it are really hard. You know, California and Massachusetts have been trying to do some versions of this for a while, and it's just not happening in those places. But at least the, the logic of kicking it up, right, is that we do talk about sort of uh, concentrated costs and diffuse benefits, right? But is that like statewide, you would see if there is more housing development in Massachusetts, that would create like a lot of economic growth, just like generally, right? And if you're the governor, you might want to say, hey, we had this amazing economic growth record under me. There was all this job creation. We had a billion construction workers. We had rents go down, right? So you you can paint a story where, like, that pays off for the governor, whereas, like, the guy at the community meeting, like, you don't care, right? Like, the, the people who build the houses probably don't live in the town where it's being built anyway, the contractors, the new people who move in, right? It's all too sort of diffuse for you to care on a local level, whereas at least in theory, higher level officials might be more, not not because they're like suddenly become angels, right? But just like normal selfish politics reasons might push you to more housing. Right. If you think about a state level official, so we think about, you know, governors in California or Massachusetts, right now their constituents are furious about rising housing costs um, and really concerned about this and looking at some level for big state-level action on this. A lot of local communities, though, in California and Massachusetts and other places like it that should be building more housing, that actually maybe isn't the constituents' views mm-hmm. on this issue, right? And so, yeah, I think having state-level actors whose interests um, more take into account the state as a whole um, can be really powerful. Um, and as you say, they look more to the collective good and are less influenced electorally by those concentrated costs. 
And so we have seen, I mean, some pretty big changes in California around uh, accessory dwelling units, right? Yeah. So they first passed a law uh, saying you, you could build an ADU basically anywhere. Now a new law says you can build uh, you can build two. Um, Nancy Skinner, state senator, she had a bill related to affordable ha- subsidized projects and sort of rolling back limits on that. One thing that that I found interesting is actually how many different times California has had to pass these ADU bills. And that's because, at least I understand it, I mean, the neighborhood defenders can be very creative. (laughs) So, yeah, right. They they have a lot of strategies at their disposal. Um, One of the big ones is lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's been a huge issue, you know, in our data. And it's not just limited to Massachusetts. It's happening across the country. um, That even if you get the regulatory framework right and, like, the developer was able to do something by right or a homeowner was able to build an accessory dwelling unit by right, you still have to deal potentially with the fact that your neighbor can sue and make your life expensive and miserable for a very long duration of time. So. And you can and you can change—I mean, one of the things I had in California with the ADUs is that first they passed a law saying, like, you, you had to allow them, and then— localities started passing, like, impact fees, right, which hadn't been ruled out because it hadn't been an impediment to progress. And it's something I—you know, a cautionary note I have, particularly about these presidential plans, because Congress tends to, like, take something up and then not address it again for, like, a billion years, right? And it's like, if you pick one regulatory tool and you say, no, you can't do that, like— People can come up with a million. There's so many different ways you can tell somebody, like, no, you can't build a house there. Yeah. No, I mean, that's one of the really striking things um, is in some ways how sneaky the regulatory framework is. You know, a lot of times when we think about exclusionary zoning, we think about places where multifamily housing is banned, which Mm -hmm. is obviously a huge problem Mm -hmm. um, and an area that we should be targeting. But yeah, there's all sorts of ways that you can regulate, as you point out, impact fees, but also like parcel shape and Mm -hmm. things that are not necessarily, you're not organizing a social movement around parcel shape regulations. Mm -hmm. But if you look in the data, they turn out to be really influential in the share of multifamily housing in a community. So So how how does that work? (laughs) Right. So there's ways like there are Land use can be regulated in all sorts of different ways. So mm-hmm. there's data um, from the Rappaport Center in of Greater Boston that shows um, something like, God, it's like over 100 different kinds of land use regulations. There are uh-huh. many different ways that you can tell a developer what they can and cannot build in a given community. So parcel shape essentially just dictates sort of what I mean, what shape the land, the plot of land that you have is, and like whether if it's of a particular sort of weird shape, you have to get a special permit or a variance, depending upon how the regulation is written. Um, And so essentially places that more tightly regulate what you can do with a weirdly shaped plot of land, Mm -hmm. we find um, produce less multifamily housing. And in Massachusetts in particular, there's a lot of weird— Yes. (laughs) I mean, this is a a, a historical legacy, right? But like parts of the Midwest were like laid out in these rectilineal— And it's interesting, hundreds of years later, it it parcels, it, it goes down, right? But New England has these very irregular roads and a lot of funny wedge-shaped properties. Yeah. Um, and if you make, make rules about that, I mean, again, it's it's I mean, it's good research, but it's also important to know, right, that if a if a town genuinely doesn't want to allow any multifamily housing, simply telling them they can't pass a rule that says that doesn't mean they'll actually allow it. Totally. Because they can come back. They can say, well, a multifamily building needs three parking units per bedroom. And then, so you're allowed, quote unquote, but it'll never pencil out. Right. And, you know, one of the other really infamous examples of this is, like, minimum lot sizes. Mm-hmm. So there's some places that are like, well, you you can build multifamily housing, but only if you have, like, five contiguous acres, mm-hmm. which is, you know, again, can be really <laughs> difficult to assemble in some places. The numbers don't usually work out. The other areas where I actually think it, it gets more complicated normatively are some forms of environmental regulation. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of places that will regulate whether you can build on wetlands and sort of how much the septic systems can mm-hmm. take. And there, you know, we probably do to some extent want we do not want overloaded septic systems. You know, in an era of climate change, we shouldn't probably be building in lots of wetlands. But the problem is places can sort of deliberately underinvest in public infrastructure, like, say, not allowing sewers and only having septic systems as a way of keeping people out. Um, and so I think managing some of those issues gets more right. tricky. Well, yeah. that's why if you have a high-level rule, right, that says, okay, you have to allow more housing somewhere. Right. Then you can come as a as a town council and you can address some kind of 
specific legitimate concerns, right? It might be that the very cheapest place to build in your whole town is on wetlands, right? So you say, no, not there. But then places where there's already houses, right, which, like, by definition, like, that's not wetlands, yeah. right? Then you're going to have to let people build build there, right? But in, in practice, it's often easier to get approval to do greenfield stuff that's yes. more environmentally destructive. Absolutely. So there's um, actually a, a woman who is sort of a hero documents land use regulations in the greater Boston area, this woman, Amy Dane, who just released a report this summer showing that across all of these communities that we studied, there's been some modest um, increase in the number of units in historic town centers, which if we're thinking about from an environmental perspective, um, from a transit-oriented perspective, mm-hmm. Of like, that's where we should be building up our density. That's where we have infrastructure um, to transport people. It's where we have um, usually sort of better public services. But that's not where we're doing most of our building. Instead, we're doing it, um, she calls it the edge city. Like, mm-hmm. we end up building up more on the edges of these communities, and that's where we've made the zoning really easy. Um, and that's problematic because the edges in the undeveloped places, they're often brownfields or floodplains, right? Like, there's a reason often that they haven't been developed until now. Um, and they are often places that are only accessible by highway. And mm-hmm. so, you know, again, when we're thinking about what is the right sustainable way to grow, that's maybe not where we should be concentrating our development. But that's the influence of giving so much weight to the neighborhood defenders Absolutely. is that the housing goes where there where aren't there are any. people. <laughs> yeah. Or, and I would say to the other place where the housing goes, right, so where there aren't any because there literally are no people living mm-hmm. there, or places where the people are disadvantaged. So mm-hmm. our data show that there are more neighborhood defenders um, in more affluent communities. Um, and so one of the things that we, you know, our data suggests is that in places with fewer neighborhood defenders in poor communities, they're going to bear the brunt of mm-hmm. development. Um, and so understandably, then when we tell them, well, we should be making it easier to build, and, you know, we see these dynamics mm-hmm. in D.C. playing out. We see them in state-level politics in Massachusetts and California. When we tell those folks you need to be we need to be building more they're understandably saying no we've we've taken all the development and you know the historic districts have been protected right so this is the the gentrification piece right that if you say okay grassroots neighborhood defenders have a lot of weight in the process then it's neighborhoods that don't have affluent older established homeowners they wind up yeah. being where where the housing is built and then people who observe the scene casually they, they look at a city and they look at a place like D.C. They say, OK, all the construction is happening in these neighborhoods. So more construction means even more construction in those neighborhoods. And the question doesn't get asked, like, why is there no construction in the neighborhoods that are most expensive? Exactly. Um, and, yeah, it creates – I mean, these folks then – they showed up, you know, in Massachusetts when we were trying to pass legislation. I mean, Massachusetts, we're so far behind other places. Mm-hmm. We currently – you cannot change zoning in Massachusetts cities and towns without a two-thirds supermajority of the legislative body. So Governor Baker had introduced legislation trying to allow zoning changes by a simple majority. And many sort of tenant groups showed up and protested at the state house because they were so frustrated by gentrification in their communities that they felt was ignored by this bill. And they understandably felt like maybe what we we don't need to be building so much. And to some extent, they're probably right. Like they've they've built a ton in those communities. Um, and there are other very affluent communities that have good transit access that haven't been building as much. And so I think it's really made it hard to assemble coalitions to pass state-level pieces of legislation because we've ignored these participatory inequalities and the distributional consequences they have. So that's why in, in California, where um, you know Scott Weiner and some others have been working on this zoning preemption bill for a couple of years now, they keep changing exactly what it says. And in the latest iteration, they just sort of block out like a set of low-income neighborhoods and say, you know, like, well, this won't apply here for like a 10-year span, right? So that's that's what, what, I mean, what they're trying to do is get people to see that in a less regulated marketplace, the, the biggest money to be made is in the most expensive places, right? The, the, the development goes to the poor neighborhoods because they're politically disempowered, not because that's what makes economic sense. Absolutely. Um, and those are often the places, too. There's been some evidence that shows that those are often the places where the zoning is more lax, too. So it's mm-hmm. sort of twofold. The zoning makes it a little easier to build in those low-income places, and there aren't as many people who have you know, the spare time or the interest to go to three-hour planning and zoning board meetings. And uh, that's probably, you know, I mean, it's, it's no related. coincidence, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, people understand. And, and And it's interesting because, you know, 
the ability to get variances is useful and important. But at the same time, in most areas of law, it doesn't it doesn't work like that, right? Like things are just against the rules. And if there's a problem with the rules, we then have to change them. And so to an extent, having this variance safety valve, you know, it, it creates the illusion that we haven't just banned construction. Right. No, absolutely. Um, and again, I think because these rules are so opaque and there's mm-hmm. so many of them, there isn't really, I think, widespread awareness um, in the absence, again, of campaigns like in Minneapolis. People don't really know that there are communities where effectively it is impossible to build anything other than a single family home on a large lot. And it's it's I mean, some of this stuff has been barely documented. I mean, it's why your your research is so fascinating, because, you know, there's like so many damn towns in America and so many meetings. You know, it's like if you want to write a story that's like about like, well, what's the income tax rate? You know, it's it's very easy to look up, right? And housing is it's important to people. A lot of people care. Uh, but it's challenging to say something like accurate and valid in general about housing policy in the United States. And so much press attention winds up alighting on these kind of rare mega projects, right? So we'll like, we'll talk about an Amazon HQ2, right, or Hudson Yards or something like that. But there's just not that much of that, right? Like most most things are not huge towers in the middle of central cities. And without centralized information about them, it's it's like hard for people to even characterize what the state of housing policy is. Yeah, I mean, so I think there are two really important points there. One, we don't talk about the politics of the mundane enough, right? Mm-hmm. Like no one is thinking about, what, you know, what is the process to, for building a townhouse? And do we care what it's you know, negotiated down from being two units to just like one unit? Mm-hmm. You know, at an individual project level, no, we don't really care. But when it gets repeated thousands of times over, it's going to start to have a big effect on the housing supply. So I think that's the first point, important point. The second important point is we just don't know a lot about systematically about how local governments work in general, mm-hmm. but specifically with zoning regulations. You know, there's a few places, Massachusetts, there are a few researchers who've gone out and collected amazing systematic data on how land use is regulated in Massachusetts. There's no nationwide database for this. So mm-hmm. we know in an ad hoc way for a few cities where people have done deep dives <laughs> how the land use regulations work. Um, and there's been a few efforts to do like surveys of local planning officials where we ask them like, hey, how does it work in your place? But there's problems with those surveys. And so it, it is sort of crazy that there isn't like a census of land use regulations. And then a lot of these community input dynamics are not themselves necessarily formal rules, right? So it's like if you talk to somebody who's a stakeholder in housing in a particular community, like they can tell you like like what the deal is. But if you try to just look up the rule, right? Like there's nothing that, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to my solar panels, but like there's nothing that says that what my advisory neighborhood commission says about this is authoritative. But like my understanding from talking to people who do this is that like that's how it works. Right. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of places where we have either informally or formally written in neighborhood councils and neighborhood associations into the planning process. Mm -hmm. And again, we think this sounds really good, like empower our neighborhood councils. But when places, so Seattle recently got rid of their neighborhood (laughs) councils um, and Minneapolis has recently done an audit of theirs as well, it turns out that like our neighborhood meetings, these councils are also super unrepresentative of their broader communities. And so, um, again, these informal processes, which we haven't really documented, we haven't really sort of evaluated in a system, systematic way, reproduce really troubling inequalities. Right. And it's like in other lines of work, you'd say like that this is this is crazy, right? Like you can't just have policy decision made by a like random subset. I, I just yeah. say, right. It's not a random <laughs> subset, right? A, a like very much not random subset who hasn't been democratically selected, who's not accountable necessarily in the way real public officials are, right? If somebody comes back around and they're like, ah, there's no affordable housing in the city, like they'll yell at the mayor. Right. Right. Like nobody knows to like find some homeowner association guy and and go yell at him. Yeah. And I think sometimes planning officials will say, well, you know, we want to give these people a chance to be heard, but we don't listen to them. Right. If they're being unreasonable. And I I will give them credit sometimes, right? They are genuinely (laughs) able to sort of say, disagree with these folks and explain to them why they're going to pursue a different policy strategy. But in reality, 
many of the people who are on planning and zoning boards, they're volunteers mm-hmm. um, and they're members of the community. So who really wants to make the you know another soccer parent furious at them for a decision they made at their local zoning board? I mean, I think it's human nature if there's someone really angry across the room from you to try to do something to make them feel a little less angry. Uh-huh. Um, and so even if they don't fully give in, and that, this is one really sort of important point we make in the book, even if these um, planning and zoning board officials aren't outright giving in and you know, get, rejecting a project outright, they're doing all these little things that make the project more expensive, and they're doing little things that make projects often smaller in scope. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I, I talked at, after my meeting to people, and they seemed to feel that I was being unreasonable to be annoyed that I had to do this, because at the end of the day, they just approved the thing. And if I if I could have sat them down with a nice thing of academic research. You know, I said, like, look, right? Like, what happened here was, like, first I had to get on the agenda. Then I was told I was on the agenda with really short notice. And actually, I had to be in New York that day. So I had to cancel, do it all over again for a subsequent month. I had to go down. I didn't know that they were going to put me on three hours into the thing, right? So, like, I'm sitting around there. There's another guy from the company. He's, like, taking off time. I've got a four-year-old, you know, my, you know, so my wife watching, like, it's it's fine, but it's it's a cost, right? Like, it's a cost inside the marriage. It's a cost to this guy's company. It's a cost of my day. And, like, it's great that you approved it, but, like, if you want to encourage people to deploy green energy or whatever, like, like just let us do right. it, right? Yeah. And, like, yeah, like, they're not bad guys, Right? You know, change your window. Like, maybe it's better. But the the process is very costly. It is. And, you know, I'm glad you raised this issue of the child care because a lot of times, you know, um, I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. So, you know, if anyone says to me, like, oh, we'll give you free child care to meeting, I'll say, oh, yeah, free child care. I'll take it. That's great. Um, <laughs> but the problem is, right, like, even if we provide free child care and, like, free pizza meetings and free whatever else induces maybe uh, some people to show up, you still have the fundamental problem that, you're going to attract a disproportionate share of opponents. I think there's Mm -hmm. very few people who, oh, I weakly prefer a four-unit apartment building Mm -hmm. being built. Um, And now that there's childcare, I'll show up. Like, I just don't think there are that many people where the marginal barrier to them showing up was the absence of childcare. There are are a few, and I think doing things to make public meetings more inclusive is certainly a good thing to do. Um, But I think if local officials are looking for solutions that will genuinely address these participatory inequalities, remaining wedded to the neighborhood meeting system for all of these land use decisions is probably not the right approach. Because you're you're actually not taking into account people's indifference, right? Which is actually a valid thing, right? Like, the fact that there's six people who are really fired up and hate this project, like, that's, that's worth something, right? But the fact that there's maybe hundreds of people who live in the intake area who didn't bother to show up, like, that tells you something, right? And the solution isn't necessarily to get them to show up. Right. right. So in political science research, when we think about what is what predicts whether someone shows up, so resources matter. And so anything we can do to sort of reduce these cost barriers is important. But being interested and engaged in the issues is also super important. And just because you're providing dinner at a neighborhood meeting isn't going to magically make me interested in that neighborhood right. meeting. Um, and so, yeah, I think fundamentally um, reconsidering the nature <laughs> of these is uh, probably a better policy it, approach. Because if, if most people are actually sufficiently unbothered by development that they don't want to come to the meeting, right? Like that's Pizza's a good reason. That's, well, but also that's a good reason to let the development go forward, right? To look at that and say, ah, the problem here is that we don't have a hundred people to come and then be like, here, here's some pizza, here's some childcare. How much do you not care about this? And like, yeah, I don't right? Like that's dumb, right? Yeah. Just like let them not care. Right. No, absolutely. And instead, taking the six people showed up really angry as evidence that this is a problematic development. It's right. a, yeah, it's a really it's weird, right? Like if you did a public opinion survey and only six people were upset about a project, you would not say, "Oh, well, we shouldn't do that project." Right, right. 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 If it was like right, if you were like everybody in America who wants to impeach President Trump, like come down to a meeting tonight. There's going to be no pizza, no childcare. Right. right. If nobody showed up, you wouldn't be like, "Oh, we should have had pizza." You'd right. say like, "Oh no, this guy's way." more popular than we thought. Right. But that's not what would happen. Like, yeah. a lot of people would show up because <laughs> uh, people, people care. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Interest matters. <laughs> right. Right. Um, anyway, uh, thank you so much for this. Um, you know, before I close these interviews out, I, I always like to ask, um, you know, what, what, what do you wish I had asked you here? What, <laughs> what, what should we have talked about? 
why we're talking about local politics here. And at some level, I, I think it's really important to be clear what reforming the system can and can't solve. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people, you know, there's this bigger debate about like whether building more market rate housing um, is actually going to improve affordability. And we think these are really important first steps as part of broader housing reform and that we still have a really big problem that there isn't enough federal and state funding for affordable housing. And sort of that bigger policy context is also really important. Right. I mean, there are people— Building houses are expensive, right? And there's people who are going to need financial help, whether that's on the front end or the back end, to afford places to live. Yeah. But we're talking here about, like, can you build? Absolutely. Anything. Anything. Right. For anyone to live in of any means. Right. So this isn't going to solve housing. This is not, like, the main solution to the housing crisis, but we think this is a really critical first step to addressing these issues. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much, Catherine Levine-Einstein. The book is called Neighborhood Defenders. Uh, You can probably find it on the internet, local bookstores, uh, other good places. Um, thank you so much. Thanks to Malachi Brodis, our engineer, and Jackson Bierfeld, our producer. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, More than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.